0: Yeah, and did you the? I can send you the uh, that other one on the central and peripheral yeah, yeah. fatigue. Send,
1: send me that one, and I'll take a look. Yeah, through
0: it. What were like? I yeah, when you came across that one on the cycling one, like, what were your? I mean, what did you think? Like, what was what, anything kind of hit you, or anything kind of like, you know, make you think when you read that?
1: Oh man, I don't know. It's been a couple years. Um. I mean I know when I was deep diving into the central versus peripheral I think like um what it gets said to me is we we tend to um we tend to lump fatigue together and right. um we tend to think of things from like this again this uh, energy system model construct and mm-hmm. I think it helps to think of it like the more and more I th- I tend to think of fatigue in this like global vision thing that also includes things like uh you know, muscle recruitment and things like that. And I think mm-hmm. I think like, you know, when I was looking at that stuff, I remember instituting or changing a little bit on how I did some workouts and looked at them from like a muscle recruitment type standpoint right Mm -hmm. see if there's like and this is something that I'd like to play around with more but if there's a way to like put yourself in some sort of metabolic fatigue right and then almost like change the force output requirements so that you train to recruit muscles, right? Or increase muscle recruitment or train to recruit muscles under a state. And that could be by simply changing from like running on flat ground to doing some short sprints uphill. It could include something like doing some sort of uh, plyos or box jumps or even weighted work um, to, you know, almost like force this higher neural drive, um, Mm -hmm. and then go back and do something on the flat ground. So one, I don't, you know, I think there's different ways that some of this central versus peripheral fatigue stuff comes in where it can change the dynamics of how you're, how you're structuring workouts. But, you know, I, I don't know how you, um,
0: I don't know. Well, let me, me, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> let me offer this, like, and you and tell me if this is you know if I'm coming from Mars on this. What if frequency is the driver? What if what if the the cost, like so? I I I I put a, a central nervous fatigue, like so after doing a longer bout or run. for me at about like 30 hours like i feel i do i feel the fog i feel the haze i feel the oof i feel like the cns hangover and about 30 hours after the modality exposure then i start to feel like normal again so what if we said well look frequency matters more than volume in one dosage so you know instead of getting a 16 mile run in you get into 8 mile runs but you do them at a higher recruitment standpoint so naturally higher quality of pace because you know uh, the brain interprets running 6 minute pace 5 minute pace 7 minute pace as completely different skill activity skill acquisition activities and if your goal is to performance oriented you do want to run faster right and then that kind of is synergistic with when shorter you know, which sort of attributes to him winning the first gold medal was like doing triples, right? Three times a day. And they weren't like it's like same thing with Bill Rogers, right? Before he uh, he put in like a big block of work before he started to become like the marathon man that was winning things, he moved to doing triples, Steve Jones, triples. All these guys were doing triples. And but they were short dosage doses, but in the course of a day. The volume was twenty six miles or you know whatever, right? but it's like boom, 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 boom. and because they were fresh enough from a from a nervous system fatigue standpoint, they could do the triples and get the skill acquisition quickly and increase the frequency. Then when you go and do something like a marathon, uh, you know, because you've trained, you've overcompensated your uh, n- neural recruitment. And your brain's capacity to say, okay, well, tr- I've been doing all these workouts or runs or whatever at 450 pace, like if we're in the modern era. Then, or I've been doing a lot of work at 450 pace. Now I'm coming back and we're running 505 pace for two and a half hours or two hours. Like, that's not that hard, right? The brain's just like, this is an easy skill. And so then I'm creating efficiency profiles to do this. And then, two, it, it also, begs the question of maybe we need to do the opposite cascading of workouts than is the convention, right? So, and so let's say, let's just take an Alberto workout, you know, uh, or uh, and go six, you know, six, five, four, three, two, flip it. Two, three, four, five, six. Start fast when you're fresh with the Bob Shule Igloy principle, fast and fresh. And then it's okay that the rep gets slower as it gets longer as you get less fresh because we know that in a kind of high taxing scenario situation, you're recruiting less, anyways. Those dominant, high power muscle fibers are turned off because of fatigue. So there's no point to do fast stuff when tired because. You're just not getting the recruitment. So do the slower stuff when tired. And to me, it was like a crystallizing moment because I've always had really good um, results with like men and women doing a, the more complex or like faster work of a session early, and, and then finishing a session sometimes with like two Ks or mile repeats at threshold. Right. You know, very easy, but doing like three miles of that afterwards rather than having one dedicated session, just a threshold type work. It's like, no, just this shit isn't that really high of a a neural uh, demand on the threshold component. And actually there's some more oxidative, uh, you know, recovery that's beneficial in the micro of the session and maybe macro from session to session. So that all got me thinking like man what if we fucking just do shit in reverse (laughs) i don't know what do you think oh man
1: you just threw a lot out there all right
0: i did i know i that's that's what i'm saying like it's it's pretty heady you know (laughs)
1: you know what i think we should just keep talking and then i can cut and splice this into a, a podcast how's that sound okay all right sure we'll just keep talking um all right so let's let's Well, I wrote down everything you wrote. Let me go through this one by one as best I can. Um, The triple idea. So, yes. If you've ever, have you ever read uh, Ernst Van Aken's book? No, Um, I have not. uh, He was the coach of Harold Norpov. Yes, I know. Uh, Um, It's an interesting (laughs) read. It's kind of crazy in some regards, but kind of very interesting um, because he essentially predicts. He's like, this is what people will do in the future. And it's like triples, quadruples, like essentially taking, uh, spreading the workload out over the day, you know? Um, right. Which was interesting. And it's also interesting because that, it, and you know this, but if you go back, um, that's kind of what they did in the early 1900s, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, it was like, yeah. it was like,
0: where well, walks counted as a session, right? Yeah.
1: It's like, wake up go for a walk after Mm -hmm. lunch, like run 800 meters hard, you know, afternoon, Mm -hmm. go for another walk, like before dinner, go run like 800 meters hard. Right. And it was all this Mm -hmm. like very split up stuff. Um, So it's interesting. You know, I, I think that that's one area that probably leaves or probably is a place to be explored. Um, and it's difficult to, I think, assess, but I also like to think of it in terms of like how many hits of like, like, uh, like almost like r- hormones, recovery hormones, like fatigue, whatever right. you want to call it, do you get throughout a day? And like, you know, if even if I'm looking at an easy run, If I'm going instead of going for 16 total and I split it into, let's say, uh, five, five and six or something like that, well, from a recovery standpoint, is that better or worse? And I think you can make the argument that it could be better because you're not creating a lot of fatigue, but you're getting this nice hit of like endorphins and some growth hormone and all this stuff uh, spread throughout the day, you know, um.
0: Right. Mac- and it's just it also too think of like John Pryor and Eddie Jones or Eddie Jordan's uh, uh, experiment and success with like Japan rugby. Right. Japan rugby f- was famous before they came there. Like in this is what they said at the game conferences here. I'm not sure if you were there when Eddie and John uh, took the stage or if you would already uh, gone across the pond. But just to recap, when they came, Japan rugby was famous for five hour long practices once a day. And then they said, you know what? Nope. We're going to cut that. We're going to do a, a density and intensity profile of three days of triples or doubles, one followed by one day, very, very, very easy. Use a regeneration day. Two more days of triples and doubles, so high intensity density profile, and then a one day. And it's interesting because I've, I've been reading more and more this 3121. Uh, oscillation of density and intensity with fall with like intense recovery day just like total regen day keeps popping up over and over and over again you know who else did that Vin at Stanford it's amazing because I looked at what he was doing and it's like now the intensity is a relative word and density is a relative word but that's what Vin was doing with those guys in the early uh, 2000s late 1990s was was and Jonathan Riley and these guys were not running more than 65, 75 miles a week, but the quality of what they were doing, there was quality built in three days a week, total rest day, or a very easy day, two more days of quality, and another rest day. And it kind of uh, harkens back to like, you know, Bowerman's concept of the hard easy approach, but a different slant on it, right? And so not everything that you do has to be hard, necessarily, right? But it's like... What are we really ultimately? What's the you know the superior organ, the one that's it's the brain, right? I mean that thing it's it's in a skull, like it's so well protected. It, look at what the body is saying. Like this organ is so important that we're just going to enclose it. <laughs> like every other organ has like leaks in it, right? The ribs aren't uh, you know a, a, a totally um, opaque structure like the skull necessarily. So it's an interesting question because if we look to other sports those habits are in there. And when prior and, uh, you know, Eddie Jordan cleaned that up, I mean, those sessions were, I was like, how long are those sessions, right? Like, oh, 45 minutes, 50 minutes max, but we're going three times a day, you know, 6 a.m., 10 a.m., 4 p.m., but we're only going no longer than an hour, but we're getting a lot of quality work done. And again, they're doing conditioning work in one of those sessions or skill acquisition and game situation stuff or play or skills in our session. So, I mean, the demands they have, too, are a lot uh, multifactorial and uh, diverse than, say, the demands we might have just as, like, linear runners, right?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, when I think about this stuff, the more I think that sometimes our models hold us back, right? Yes. And the great thing about Bowerman and those guys is they didn't have as ingrained models to deal with. So they, mm-hmm. they were able to innovate. And I think the internet has been great in the sense that it's brought in the entire standard of training up to a very high level uh, from, you know, across the board. But I think what it might have done is push us all towards this similar model, right?
0: Yes. Yeah, because, um, we you know, we're naturally yeah. conformist creatures. <laughs> like so, I mean, we're herd creatures, right? We want to conform. So, like, do the best practice. Yeah. So... You
1: know, but so how do we get out of that? And what how do we think about these in, in different ways? And one of the ways I like to think about it is like if we're just talking about adaptation, right, then we shouldn't just talk about adaptation in terms of like how to get stronger or how to get, you know, improve endurance. We should talk about how the body adapts. And mm-hmm if we step back and we think about like um adapting to different stressors or like improving our you know uh, memory function or our ability to uh, you know get better at or learn new information or whatever it is like all the all the research on the mental side points to uh, like interspersed practice where it's like do do a little bit of this step away do something else come back to this you know um Mm -hmm. so it makes you think like hey is there is there room for this and what are we missing here because i think the world started to switch towards this more longer is better um Like, one single is better once, like, Lydiard and his, like,
0: high-mileage guys came in, right? Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, okay, Lydiard was a used shoe salesman. Let's just be real, real about this, right? Like, I mean, interesting concepts. But he was out hawking his concept, his training format, for the majority of his, like, later life, right? And that's why he's so well-known, like, because that guy just went on a campaign, and ceaselessly talked about his training method and gave people a very easy solution to a very complex dynamic situation. Just calculate the total number of miles you run in a week, have marathon training, and then do this and do that and do that, and voila, you're going to be magically better. I don't think it's that straightforward. I mean, one thing I think that people omit that's really important to Lydia's philosophy is the bounding period, right? Because that is where muscle recruitment and that's where, like, motor units and neural drive and all these types of things happen. And, yeah, if an athlete – because we're all trying to get towards the same point, right, which is how little fatigue can one be at the end of a race? <laughs> like, that's the goal, right? Go goes as fast as you can, as far as you can before fatigue sets in. But Sardy, again, he decides to stay cloistered up in uh, Portsea, and only people who visit him knew who he was. But – I'd have to argue, you know, because they had classic, you know, coaching battles with their pupils, right, during their lifetime. I'd argue Sarity was probably the more forward thinker.
1: Yeah, and that's where it's that's where it's interesting, because you look at all these things, and it's like they're all trying to evolve things to agree, <laughs> and without Lydiard we'd be in a, a different place, and probably arguably a worse place, um, from a general whole of him saying, like, hey, this aerobic stuff is important. But I do mm. think I I do think that, that what happens, not a not far from what happens in every other aspect of the of of life, is that we put these guys on pedestals and um, are afraid to challenge their thinking sometimes. So,
0: yeah. and but couple that with like say Iglo and Shul, right? I mean you've I mean the, he's a genius. Like, it's just, it's to like, I yeah, mean, reading and, Shul's book, it's and, like,
1: geez. And we don't, we don't use it because there was not, there was no salesman to it. Like, there was no right. publication. So, it it died, unfortunately. And that's, you know, as I think about that, that's part of the reason why we put out information. It's not because, you know, we've talked about this. It's not because we have the answers or stuff like that. But, like, you look through history and Lydiard's stuff is, you know, influenced a generation. shul uh, I mean, Igloy and to to degree serity um their stuff especially Igloy's, like didn't influence that many people even though like igloy was a freaking genius at what he was doing
0: yeah and you know, let's and, be real igloy with los angeles track club he had the american record holders different guys 15 mile 3k steeple 3 mile 5k 10k like imagine how insane people would be if one track club today if brooks beast bowerman Oregon project had all the American record holders from the 15 to the 10 K all like yeah. people flip their shit. Igloy had That yeah. <laughs> doing it doing <laughs> like, that without sponsors, all that stuff. The, exactly, the original,
1: like, <laughs> the original American group. We'll say that,
0: right? Yes. No, um, I mean, it's, it's crazy. And these are just different guys who came from different systems, different universities who all came to Los Angeles. And, and I think, you know igloy scares people off because of the walk part right yeah. people are like oh well how do you get your volume in if you're walking in between reps oh you're not you're not getting the stimulus well no no fresh is better like and, go fast be fresh and, walk and, and, I th- and get I, done
1: i think one of the things going back to the singles doubles triples whatever you want to call it that often is neglected is that in the in the 60s 50s whatever um whether you did singles or doubles was often dictated by w- what you did for work. <laughs> um, that was the driving force, right? Because like, if you were a guy who had a certain job and had to work all day, then like, you know, sometimes it meant, Hey, I'm going to get up in the morning and crank this. If yeah. you, if you're, um, gosh, I'm blanking on his, his, uh, but Buddy Edelin, and your job is a school teacher. Then you're saying, y- you know, forget this. I'm not running one long run today. I'm going to run to school in the morning, then run to school in the night, s- or run back from school in the evening because mm-hmm. I'm teaching, and that becomes your, you know, you just did doubles because
0: hey, this fit around my lifestyle. Um, or if you're like Horace uh, filter Right, the only gold medalist in the Steeplechase for America. Like you're an FBI agent, you're running from 10:30 at night to midnight, (laughs) like because that's when you have time. (laughs) But you know what was interesting, right, with Horace's training, is he did that singles, and then when he, uh, if you remember, he when he had time to quote unquote train before the Olympics, like a three week period, he did triples, and all of a sudden he's like, I got real fit doing triples. Real fit, like crazy fit. I mean, but like shorter. And that's what I'm saying. You just go back. You look at shorter. Bill Rogers, Steve Jones. Uh, you know, um, Hor- even as far back as Horace. It, it, it's it's not about doing three of these things a day. It's about increasing the frequency that is fresh. And if we think about this too, it's almost like you could make the um, uh, co- you know connection that. It's the same with eating, right? Like, would you have one big meal in the morning? I mean, your body can survive off that. That's fine. Or what do you have? You know, we've decided that three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, is the best dosage to get your calories and nutrients in a day, right? It's just very interesting, I think, when you start to look around and get sensitive to it and you say, hmm, what is the best uh, dosage and frequency of dosage for the brain? You know, and then the bot, and then my question is, does the neuroanatomy and physiology change first, and then you get the morphological changes in in adaptations in the body and the thoracic cavity? Is that a does that then follow? Are, are we putting the cart before the horse by being as we are very body centric instead of saying, oh, the so, brain's the driver?
1: Yeah. So going back, and we're gonna circle back to your original comment here. Um, I was reading this interesting book called Building Resistance to Stress and Aging by uh, Richard Deanspear. I'm going to mess up that name, but I'll include it in that. And he makes a fascinating argument um, looking at how we can essentially toughen up the, the body and mind. And his version of toughness is just essentially... Uh, adapting it to stress right so that mm-hmm. we become more resilient or whatever as it, his focus is as we age but the it applies to you know um you know performance as well i i think and and here he goes over all of this research that they they've done on on rats right um and small animals looking at uh whether they be adapt to stress or whether be, they become like helpless to stress. Right. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there's all this interesting stuff. For example, you know, whether young rats get licked by their mom or like get segmented away or whether they get, you know, handled by the person caring for them, like picks them up and just holds them in their hand until they stop squirming and all these different like stressors that they could put on them. And it, it's, It's fascinating because depending on the dosage and timing and frequency of it, like the rats can either become more robust and, in his words, tough, right? And Mm -hmm. have better, Mm -hmm. we'll call it well-being, better neurochemicals, all that stuff over time with a moderate amount of stress repeated, um, I think he says, like consistently and like predictably with breaks in between, right? Right. Um, right, yeah. but if there's no stress applied to these rats let's say they're just kind of taken care of their well-being you know robustness is is decreased and if there's too much there's there's you know mm-hmm. their well-being and and stuff is decreased and you know for example one of them showed that you know if if a uh, if a rat was kept in total isolation for 15 minutes uh, periods and then given long breaks like he'd become more robust if it was hour-long periods um, then it would become almost depressed over time and his his neurochemistry would follow right and you know as i'm reading this i'm like well this is the same thing that we're doing in in training and in their research they tie a lot of it to uh, activation of uh, the stress response system, so looking at like adrenaline, cortisol, all that stuff. And you know, his claim is that you can essentially tie this to like whether your stress system responds what we call productively or as if it's uh, you know, possibly like dying. Um, right, yes. <laughs> and 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 he put it like this he said that, like if you're predominantly more like epinephrine adrenaline kind of that that role what happens is your body responds and that stuff has a half life of you know 90 seconds to 2 minutes so it's like stress respond and then it's gone and you adapt right but he said if you're if the rats or humans or whatever become more cortisol dependent well mm. the the half life of cortisol in the body is about 90 minutes um So you're looking at, like, if you respond to a stressor with lots of cortisol, like, that stressor might be there and then gone within, you know, a couple minutes, but your body is continually responding to it for the next, you know, couple hours, essentially. Um, And what you want is this nice stress, like, big arousal sometimes, like, big combat it, whatever, but then it goes away. Um, Right and then you do it again and it comes up big and then it it goes away and um in not to belabor the point but in the same point he says that if you look at like depression and stuff like that um or if you look at social stressors a lot of times those are worse than physical stressors because what happens is in in the social stressors and this happens in depressive patients a lot as well is that you have this initial hit of let's say stress and it's adrenaline plus some cortisol and other stress hormones and all this stuff. But then because it's a social stressor, sometimes what happens is periodically throughout the day, we start ruminating on it. Right. Mm -hmm, And we mm re-engage with it and you say, gosh, that was such an embarrassing moment or a shameful moment or a lonely moment or whatever. And it just cycles. And every time you have that re uh, introduction in your your mind and mental like you get another little hit of this cortisol stress hit
0: right yeah it triggers yep yep
1: and so you don't adapt and that's why people struggle a lot more to adapt to um shame and other social stressors or uh anxiety and other social stressors well, yeah it's anxiety of
0: the past right that e- like you can't shake and e- it's like why all these like zen or meditative practice say let the past go because there's some truth to that like it's not real anymore. That thing, like that moment in time, came and went. But your habitual revisiting and reliving it is keeping you shackled.
1: It, exactly. So uh, as I think about those things, you know, I I say like, okay, like what if we frame? What if we frame training in the similar standpoint? Right. Um, what we're looking at is applying a stress so that our body can adapt. So we want something that is at least moderately challenging, et cetera, et cetera, not too little, not too much, Goldilocks, blah, blah, blah. Um, But like what we also want is to come off of that stress and like deload in the sense of like, okay, like stress, adapt to it, or like here's this stimulus to adapt. Now let's come off of it. And then come back on it periodically and predictably with this rest in between versus I think sometimes what what happens is we we get the the go big, go home, like, you know, huge stressors so that like, you know, for hours on end, your body's just drained. And then, you know, two days later, you're you feel that like, oh, you know, yep. um, which might not be the best way to adapt to things.
0: Well, it's about stimulation, right? So you have to say, what is a a stimulating activity and what does stimulation look like? And now more than ever, right, because of all the stimulants we have available to us, whether ingesting or through screens or whatever, when when are you not stimulated, right? And so the brain wants stimulation for sure. It's addicted to it. It has a positive chemical response to stimulation, but that's what training is. So instead of talking about global volume, how many miles a week did you run, it should be more of a conversation, what's the stimulating volume, right? Like how many – what's the uh, exposure of work that you've done that actually creates a stimulus followed by a growth period, right? And it's how we talked about – how we know frame training. You do hard workout. That's an alarm period. And after that alarm period has been triggered – you spend time in a growth period and so it's kind of like mini tapers right but if you're sitting here and saying i have to be very consistent with my volume and i have to you know get 100 miles in a week and in order to do that i'm going to my strategy is to run 15 miles a day you know on average so every day i'm going to run around 15 miles and if today i run 3 miles oh shit my global tally for 7 days is off well who cares <laughs> i mean if the brain doesn't care like the body doesn't care We've just contrived this arbitrary measure. When I'm when you think about it, it's like that's exactly it. Be exposed to a stress, take time away to grow from it, re-expose again at the same or higher level of intensity or frequency or density or what have you. And it's this, you know, back and forth oscillation. And I think I mean that's that's where my question with all this comes in is like we're talking here and we're so body centric we're talking about adapt- physiological adaptations in the body in the you know in the hearts and lungs and bloods and mitochondria and every in muscles but really uh, it, it, it's the brain man like like let's talk about that and we know right a 20 30 minute mid afternoon nap a siesta right we, there's there's research and scientific evidence that's really good that demonstrates that that elevates you significantly your cognitive power your processing power your decision making power your awareness better than a cup of coffee so why we have these practices built in into our modern society which is hung over from the industrial age when we have the the ford taylor model of management where it says people need to be managed by you know authority and power and you know top down management and you need to stay on the conveyor belt for 8 hours a day uh, you know, and the only reason we have a weekend, right, is because Henry Ford was like, We need people to work five days a week, not six, because I need them to buy my cars. And we need to give them a, an excuse to flee the city in my cars for a couple of days. One day ain't going to cut it. So we'll just make it so there's two days now. <laughs> like, that's why we transitioned to five day work week, because Henry Ford's like, We need to do it this way because I need to sell cars. So if we shed ourselves of that Protestant industrial work ethic, and we say, look, b- b- higher quality, higher frequency, shorter bouts are probably the better way to go to stimulate more lasting and, and accelerative adaptation. I think we're on to something. And it's interesting I'm reading a lot about football coaches, especially like the you know, the mid eighties and early nineteen nineties era with Bill Parcells and Bill Walsh, and you know, out of that came Bill Belichick, right? Well, you know bill parcells was that old school like ground and pound lots of pads we're going to practice out in the heat no water three hour practices what have you and he, you know he did have good results bill walsh you know the famed west coast offense he you know with the 49ers i mean he took the 49ers which was a, a hapless organization and made them into super bowl perennial super bowl champions in the 80s and 90s because he understood like shorter is better so the whole passing system was shorter, quicker passes, right? And then he was the first football coach ever to have no pads at practice and walkthroughs. Hey, we're not gonna we're not gonna hit hard today. We're gonna have like short, quick, fast practices, and you're gonna leave feeling fresh. I want you to feel fresh because the stimulus of competition, the big stress of competition, that was the thing they had to recover from. Just as we set up like the traditional model of racing at the scholastic level of having these races as the big stimulant of the week and then and then ideally positioning recovery around it but we've just come to this desire, this concept of oh you race too much and if you race too much you're not going to get fast and you're not going to get fit we need to train all the time and then race very sparse and infrequently i think that model i don't know if i agree with that model anymore (laughs) Yeah, it's um,
1: it's the old Ron Clark argument, right? Right. Yeah. Like Ron Clark
0: raced a ton, um, sometimes three, four days a week. Or yeah, yeah. I mean three, four days a week. And, he set a whole record on Saturday and come back around eight hundred on Monday. And um, <laughs> the, if you've ever watched, is uh, floating around on the
1: internet is Steve Scott's log from from a year of uh, his training. And it's fascinating because there's so many freaking races in there, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I look at it as um, what's best both for the athlete and then also what's best for the sport. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure where the athlete falls on it, but I know that one thing that I've noticed is that in high school when you, you tend to race a lot – um races they don't lack meaning or importance but like you learn how to deal with them <laughs>
0: easier i'd say yeah well you have to give meaning and importance to it and i think that's yeah. where you know this is a whole nother topic but, but losing the team concept in high school track is really hurting the what racing is about because i remember i grew up Racing with the team concept model, and that really helped give some races significance. They'd be easy, easy, easy efforts to then outkick someone. Hey, run this, get points. We're going to treat it like a tempo run. There's no one here on this team that is really like endurance or like distance. Like you know what i mean But now that the, the the narrative drivers just run a time, and if you don't run a time better than your previous time, something's wrong with you, and your ranking goes down. That creates a much more of uh, precarious situation for why we're doing what we're doing.
1: Yeah, it's just yeah, it's just a little different, you know. And I think that from a, from an athlete standpoint, I think that that sometimes it creates this. If you race seldomly, sometimes it creates the uh, the idea that every one of these matters a whole lot, right? Because you only have so few instances, so it you know it takes something out of it um if yeah you
0: come in heavy man a lot of pressure yeah
1: exactly and then i think from a just from a standpoint of helping the sport out i actually think the racing lasts on the pro scene is partly why our sport kind of goes down obviously yeah. it's not the only reason but um I don't know. I mean, you look at basketball, baseball, all these sports, even football, like but more so basketball and baseball and soccer and hockey, like they play a lot of games for a reason and it's that many games best for the
0: athletes probably not. I'd say no, but I they, don't I mean, I don't know. Like they, I mean, they It's under- like look at Daniel Herrera. Like I mean, Dan's been racing Dan frequently has about 30 to 35 races in a year. And we start yeah late january and we go and he goes till like october right i mean and dan's been doing this now for what i mean and he's a miler right so his races are five minutes his contests but he's been doing this now going on three years no injuries and getting better like and we are very uh strategic about it because we're always kind of like in this like taper and preparation like it's it i mean like He's coming up and he's going to do two miles. So he's going to do a road mile. Even That's going to be preceded by a track mile. And this is in like a 24 hour period. Like, you know, he's going to run Westchester and then go run Liberty like uh, this weekend. So, I, I, yeah, I think you also have to look at the demands of what the athlete, like, I'm not saying necessary, but then you look at like Sarah Hall, right? Who's saying, hey, I'm going to run both Berlin and New York. Like, most people are like, oh, you're insane, but you know, having worked with her, like, yeah you, that's probably very doable for sarah like just because of her demeanor and how she comes into it and so what is what is the optimal free, dosage or frequency like i don't know yeah yeah I mean, because sarah challenges like that's sarah has long challenged our convention on what we think is possible and like sarah will show up and she'll win a national title one week and the next week She'll be, you know, ready to go and compete and win it again, or top three, and then maybe like bomb, and then the following week win another national title on the road. Like it's pretty awesome. Like I, I, it's a, I'm a big fan of how Sarah does what she does. And Sarah has
1: a very good and different view on racing, right? And I think like that's what it gets back to. That it's almost like the high school view of when you enjoy racing. I mean, I think I think you. Think back to when you first started getting started in track, whether it's junior high and high school early on. And races were what you look forward to, right? You didn't, (laughs) I mean, you look forward to practice goofing around with your friends, but it wasn't like, oh man, we're going to go do 10, 400s today. Yeah, woo! Like, (laughs) you know, you just kind of showed up to practice because you knew like, hey, like this is what we got to do to race, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And then like the races were the enjoyable times because it's like, all right, you're going to line up with your buddies and go see what you could do and all this stuff. And, and I think Sarah takes that approach to the professional scene where a lot of times what happens on the pro scene, I think is that like, Hey, we're going to hide away train for a really long time and then have, you know, one or two, one or two of these races that we, we focus on. And. It, <laughs> I think I think it hurts the sport more than anything, and the athletes mm-hmm. maybe, but I think that the sport is worse for it because people want to be entertained. And the, the analogy I would use is uh, what happens if you showed up for the Los Angeles Lakers, right? And LeBron only played once every four games you know right yeah um
0: (laughs) no you couldn't sell tickets
1: you you wouldn't sell tickets and what if it was like a random four games that you didn't know right it wasn't like every four games but sporadically like he'd showed up to the ones that he thought were worthwhile you know maybe only it maybe only shows up when they play the rockets and you know whoever um the warriors like the best teams like that that would hurt the sport, but here we are in track and we do just that essentially. And I know there's different dynamics and you know, Sarah's maybe an exception a little bit, but like she's done it with marathons. Well, but I don't it,
0: think so. I mean, like, look at when I was coaching Tara Welling in two thousand sixteen, like she raced a bunch. So before like she raced a five K PR It's 10 days before the Olympic trials and then had her best Olympic trials and ran, you know, competitively top 10 in both in the 10 and the 5K. Like that's 20 kilometers of track racing at the highest level. She was just fine. She actually PR'd in the final of the 5K, the last race, in the middle 3K, ran her PR in for 3K in the middle 3K. (laughs) Like, and she was, and to her credit, and I really esteem this about her. She was like, I don't give a shit about workouts. I just want to race. That's what's going to get me better. That's what's going to like. And she didn't complete many of the workouts we had in between races that spring of 2016. But man, when she showed up to the line, she was all in. She was like, this is what I'm this is why I've prepared as I've prepared. Like, I don't want to sit here and just run ad nauseum workouts to quote unquote, get ready for the trials. Racing will get me ready.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because, like, on the college level, you that's not that rare,
0: right? You look at NCAAs
1: when kids are doubling and tripling and stuff like that, and they accomplish some pretty crazy stuff. Um, mm-hmm. um, even doing, like, you know, 10K, 5K doubles. I've seen people on 10K, 5K conference doubles where it's like, you know, the next the five K on the last day after they're
0: fried, they they do well or PR or whatever and
1: it's it's kinda
0: normal. Yeah, or people who do the ten K steeple five K triple. Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. I've seen it done well. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, it's uh I have too. Um and it it's interesting, right? And I think if you go back to the seventies, eighties models with like the Bill Rogers of even Marathon running right, what what was
0: he doing but racing <laughs> racing a ton you know yeah i mean he would run those road races and get beat like small short road races but for him he consider that quote-unquote speed work running these 10k road races you know and get smashed by some local club guys but then like four weeks later go win the boston marathon <laughs>
1: so there's i think there i think what it is and this uh, not to blame everything on the internet but there's a little bit of people have this expectation that if I show up in race, like it defines me. Right. And if I don't race to the best of my ability, like I'm going to get punished or people will think less of me or whatever have you. And the, the mindset back then was, yeah, you're racing. Um, but it wasn't as much of the ego tied to it. I don't think, or maybe some differential um, because I don't know. It's like, it's like an understanding. If you know, if you go in thinking every race is the be all end all, then like, you're not going to race very frequently. If you're, you know, like you were in high school. I mean, I remember my senior year, my senior year, like I ended up becoming the number one miler in the country, but Mm -hmm. during cross country season, like, I don't know, every, every week, like someone in our local area, would beat me like we just cycle through it like there were probably six seven guys who one week i'd win the next week the other one win and it was just like cycling through it right and it wasn't like you sat there and been like oh no like now I'm ranked, you know, number five in the state and number 30 in the country. Like, oh gosh, like I shouldn't race again until I'm ready to like really, right. really beat this kid. And I think, you know, just in that example, and I've seen in others, but what happened is throughout cross and then later through a track, like it just elevated our games because we knew we were going to, you know, go to battle every every single weekend. And it was fine if we lost, like we just went back and tried to do better the next week. And I think... We we've taken a little bit of out of that in the sense that now, now we only want to show up when we can show up, you know.
0: Yeah, and I think that's just a very uh, – what it is, you know, ultimately it's a mediocre mindset. And I think it creates a high degree of anxiety because someone who has had the mindset that we're championing and esteeming here and had a brilliant career, two Olympic medals, is Nick Willis. I mean, Nick Willis will show up when he's not ready at races and get beat, and he'll race to race, and he'll race because he knows racing is the driver that gets him better. I mean, I, I really esteem what Nick did this summer, like it or uh, uh, a month ago. He ran the Sunset Tour, you know, 15, had a solid showing there. And then the next day, him, Mac Fleet, Eric Avila, Daniel Herrera, decided – On a whim, Dan was going to do a workout the next morning. And and then he's like, oh, hey, you know, Eric texts me, Nick and Mac, and these guys are going to run 800 in San Diego, which is like a 90-minute drive from L.A. And he's like, what do you think I should? I go, go race them, man. Like, go, go play. Yes, like, go race. I mean, scrap the workout, dude. Go drive 90 minutes and go race these cats. Again, (laughs) less than 24 hours later. And, you know, and ended up like Nick ended up beating Dan in a lot. Closing steps of the eight by, like, 0.05 seconds. But the fact that Nick would be willing to play big, you know, do a pickup race, right? I mean, this guy's a double Olympic medalist. Like, I mean, who other – like, name another Olympic medalist that would just do that on a whim. Like, I think that spirit is worth championing because it's through the crucible of competition that we get better, not – This new narrative we have, and I can tell you there are certain groups out there that champion this narrative of sequester yourself in the mountains, train your butt off, and then you have one shot to hit a home run. If you don't, the whole career is on. I understand that mentality and why you play the game like that. But I don't think that's the narrative for most people to esteem. Competition's always the driver. And I think you found that out, too. And we saw that early on. In the early 2000s, right, with the big three in high school, Webb, uh, Ritz, and Hall, when they compete at Foot Locker, Cross, right, that th- – them all wanted to compete against each other. And it, it's very interesting, right? Webb came from, like, the East, Dathan from the Midwest, Hall from the West Coast, all different training models. But them being like, oh, I got to compete, I got to compete, I got to compete, them driving themselves to compete against each other. That arguably was the greatest era in high school cross country, and I don't just say that because I came up in that and like you know looked up to that. But I was just like, those guys showed up ready to deal. And then what happened? Well, Webb got beat in cross, but then he went to go break four, you know, multiple times, indoor and outdoor, right? The historic high school career because he was getting ready to compete. And that's if you know Alan, he's a competitive dude. <laughs> like, I mean. It, I mean, I played Bananagrams with this guy, and he gets upset when he gets just tossed by his wife or my wife. Like, But that's the thing we're missing is the correct com- competition. It's in the arena, not necessarily in who had the better training session or more impressive training log that we're posting on social media. It, that's the wrong driver.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting. Like, we've kind of...
0: I feel like we're two old dudes
1: like being nostalgic here and that's not the point but it's it's interesting because if you look at how high school has changed right um, is that now you have separate cross country championships right so we lack sometimes that big it's harder for that, that if that big three was competing in this era there's an entire possibility that uh you know Ritz goes to Nike team, whatever, you know, Hall goes to Footlocker and Webb does one or the other, you know? That's um right. which is a, a shame because I think like that moment of those guys all lining up. I mean I remember watching it yeah. on on a, a crappy, you know, um whatever. And I remember watching it and was just taken aback by it. And it's like fired up,
0: you know? Yes. I was fired up too. Like these cats were dealing.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, that's the nature of our sport. Right. And we've, we've devolved down into chasing times a little bit and putting emphasis on this when the, the, um, the emphasis is on matchups and racing. And, and sometimes what, what happens is when we take, when we wait until everyone is feeling good when everyone is not fatigued when everyone is damn near perfect to race the outcome becomes a little bit more predictable right if le- if lebron james was able to rest fully for every game le- like he would dominate every game i i feel like you know um but he's not, and sometimes he's fatigued, and sometimes his shot is off, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. he can't wait until oh, I'm going to rest a couple games before my shot is good and my legs are back. He's just got to do it. And that's something that I think that we miss in this sport, which creates interest and intrigue, uh, which is showing up and, and just dealing and see, seeing what's there on that day and having this element of competition.
0: Um yeah. I and mean, I think you know it's it's like you said it's there's been this uh recess from racing because we've over-raced quote unquote but I don't think it's necessarily we've over-raced or we had an era of over-racing we had an era of ill preparation meaning We probably worked the kids and the athletes too hard in between competitions, and because of that, they came into competitions lackluster or excessively fatigued because coaches felt they had a need to get in all these metabolic ingredients or exposures throughout the course of a week, and like, how do I do it? We have two races, and we got to get this mitochondria adaptation. Like, okay, timeout genes. Like, unless you're tracking that and taking muscle biopsies, you don't really know with like concrete specificity specificity about what's really happening in that person you're working with like what their adaptation you know, like physiological adaptation is but what you're doing is if you're making them overly exhausted by plowing a bunch of homework on them and saying you got to read 500 pages and write 10 page essays every day and then you got to be ready for this test that happens twice a week yeah, when are you gonna have time to study or rest up for the test? Never. So you're gonna flunk it. And so it's like back in the you know uh, era where competition was more esteemed, that became the driver because that's where real learning took place. Being prepared for competition, sure, you might have trained a little bit in the off season, but you got more prepared for competition as the competitive season went because you had the adaptations and you said, huh, I gotta be able to do this to compete with these guys. So I gotta be able to you know, sprint at the end or cover surges or whatever. And now we've just, again, I think we swung the pendulum, like you said, Steve, in a direction where we have to over prepare because it's a sense of control. I can control the numbers in practice. I can I can coach by the numbers. How many miles a day or week are we running? You know, what's the time that you're running in practice? And then I can make this linear correlation between the times we're running in practice and the times you're on the track. And if you just do it in this physiologically efficient way, even splits, you're going to get the time. I guarantee it, Johnny. No, I don't think this is, that's the answer because it's very, very seductive. And we as humans love simple solutions to very complex dynamic problems, but it's, that's too linear of a logic. It's too, it's too straightforward. What happens is what we see is, things that we often think are second or third order uh, of importance are actually first order of importance. And things we often think are first order of importance are actually second and third, meaning that a lot of times it's not, the answer is not straightforward. It's a little bit more indirect. And because you have to ask yourself, okay, Bob Shul, like getting back to originally what we are talking about here, had a density intensity profile of doing two workouts a day running intervals i mean running fast but he wouldn't he really advocated running over 400 meters so he's running hundreds 150s 140s 200s and walking walking in between each one like 400 meter walk in between a set no jogging right but this is the last guy to win an olympic gold medal in the 5k for america and the only one and in dominant way remember he was the only guy who went in ever for an Olympic gold medal from America that was favored. He was favored by everyone to win. He was supposed to win. He was the dominant guy in the 5K in his era, right? And he did it through a way which championed high and dense high intensity, high density. But in the micro of a workout, we're walking in between each rep to get fully ready for the next rep. And in the mac meso of workout to workout, lots of you know Easy, non-stressful activity, non-stressful lifestyle, non-stressful demeanor. And in the macro, season to season, taking long periods off with no activity, right? And just like really getting this nervous energy, as they call it back in the day, fully recuperated. And so if you look at how we set things up in a, from the high school scholastic model of dual meets and invites, it makes perfect sense. High frequency of racing. Because that's the thing that matters, not long blocks of training opportunity. Because that really doesn't necessarily matter as mu- it matters, but it doesn't matter as much as we've given it credit to matter or weight as we've given it to this day and age. I think you have to ask yourself: Are you are we robbing people of an opportunity to explore and compete and learn more about themselves and the spirit of competition by esteeming training matters more than competing or quote unquote training through races, right?
1: Yeah, and you know, for those who haven't seen it, and we'll include it in the in the show notes, uh, you should really take a look at Bob Schul's Olympic victory. Um, yes, and, and realize, like, and I double I looked this up. I double checked this. Michael, uh, Doctor Michael Joyner loves telling this story and talking about this. But Bob Schul's last three hundred meters on a muddy track, like not a cinders, not, yes, cinders. <laughs> it it was like. And I'm 37, 9, 38 flat for the that last 300. Yes. Like,
0: think about that. That's insane. Um, and, but it's the only time the, when he raced was the only time he was doing 5,000 years continuous without a walk break. Think about that. The only time he'd ever did anything, quote unquote, aerobic without the walk break. Is that – I mean his his aerobic runs or shakeout runs were six kilometers. That's four miles, guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: I mean that's not so um...
0: – But it makes sense because it's like it, – it's the podcast that everyone I think should listen to that uh, uh, Vern on the game cast uh, with Vern and Martin B- uh, Basinger that uh, they did with uh, Tony Holler, the famed Illinois uh, sprints high performance coach at the high school level. He's a big advocate of sprinters, right? Of doing high-intensity work coupled with, wetted with, very low-intensity or high-restoration activity immediately following it. Meaning, like, he rarely has his quarter-milers ever run over 100, 120 meters in practice and not that much volume. Doing 200 meters for them is like, that's the long-volume day. Never does his quarter-milers or even anyone else run longer than 200 for an intense rep in workout. Now you say, well, the sprinters, they have different energy system requirements. They can get away with that. Sure. I mean, I'm not advocating and saying like we distance runners need to just sprint 200 meters and less all day. No, what I'm saying though, is the principle of what he's happened upon and same deal Self-guided learner, autodidactic, didn't know what he was doing, was a basketball coach that became a track coach and just said, this is the way that people want uh, respond best to it and we're having success in competition, which matters most. Because last time I checked, high school and also college athletes get recruited to the next level, whether it's college or pro, through their works in competition, not how impressive their blocks of training were. You know, I don't think there's as much correlation as we think between impressive training logs and race results as one would like to think, because we Tony totally realized what mattered is the race result. So get people prepared for the crucible racing, and by not re- ever going necessarily the distance that you're racing, it seems counterintuitive on the surface. But when you think about how the brain best learns, and what we started talking about initially, it's these short, high highly intense dosages followed by long periods of growth or processing so that can go, it can put part, part, part together so that when you do the whole action, race of five K race of 400 without ever having done that distance at that intensity of practice, you're capable of doing it. It's amazing. (laughs) So
1: maybe wrapping this up, um, it's been an interesting conversation. And I think that's that's what we're trying to get at is you know, if you've listened to this podcast enough or if you're new, welcome. But like one of the things that we try to get at is to make you think about why you're doing it and and to think about things, right? Is is that more than anything. Is we're not saying everybody should drop this approach and take this approach or drop this and do this or that this no, is no, the, no. The, the best way to do it. What we're saying is like in track and in training and strength and conditioning, we have all these dogmatic ideas that often go unquestioned. Um, and there's always outliers who have done something different, like a Shul or Igloi or a Serity or a Herb um that don't catch on. And a lot of times they don't catch on because they didn't have someone championing, championing uh, their, their approach, right? Igloy was not going to write a training manual and go around and tour and tell everybody how to do it. Um, mm-hmm. And in that day and age, if that didn't happen, you're not catching on, right? And same with Sarity. Like, Sarity didn't... He wrote books, but it didn't include the training in it. His were about... No, was, his were about... philosophy. Life, philosophy. Yeah. Um, his... Ca- was a holistic approach. Yeah. You know? His other counterpoint at the time, Fran Stample wrote books and spoke on interval training like no other, right? Mm -hmm. So, interval training, the systematic interval training kind of took hold. And Lydiard wrote books, talked
0: about long endurance work. So, it takes... wrote like eight, nine books. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's all about data points, right? Like, it's easier to find stuff on Lydiard. It's easier to find stuff on Stample. Cronova has made himself easy to find stuff on, right? And because it's more accessible it's more familiar and yes their athletes are have had did have success you don't discredit that that model can work but it's not as easy to find like you got to dig hard to find school stuff and then you download it on the kindle and it's, the formatting's all gunky and it's like oh man it's hard to read but it's worth it because it's just a different solution to the same problem that we're all trying to like get after which is how to make the most competitive, um, athlete for your arena. But I, this is, I think when we stop questioning, that's when we start receding because we have to say, well, there's a whole lot of different ways to slice, you know, uh, crack this egg and to, to sit here on cloud high and say, this is the number one model. I mean, it's why I give so much flack to like the formulaic, um, you know, uh, coaching philosophy that, it has unfortunately become associated with Daniel's. It's not because Daniel's is dumb. Like, it's actually really smart. But what happens is you put a chart with a bunch of correlating numbers, and you say, this is the correlating numbers, people will conform to the chart rather than say, well, maybe the it's not a directly linear relationship, as the chart suggests. The whole point of it is just a compass, right? It's just a framework. It's just to give us some guidance as we continue to explore. But when you stop exploring... And you just regurgitate recipes that came before you and say, Hey, look, this is how it is. I think that's where the whole human spirit enterprise of what we're doing and evolving kind of, again, takes a, uh, takes a, a recess and we, we enter a winter of sorts rather than continuing to have like a flourishing spring and summer.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And we'll end it there, but we'll include show notes, uh, links, um, all sorts of good stuff to uh to the resources mentioned and um yeah and just as we said like we appreciate you guys listening but the biggest thing is like challenge your thinking a little bit ask why you're doing it and you know explore coaches who have had equal success as those that we hold up on our mount rushmore but who didn't popularize it because there's going to be good ideas in there that have gone by the wayside (laughs)